Welcome to Fernway Insights, where prominent leaders and influencers shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector discuss topics that are critical for executives, boards, and investors. Fernway Insights is brought to you by Fernway Group, a firm focused on working with industrial companies to make them unrivaled segment of one leaders. To learn more about Fernway Group, please visit our website at fernway.com. Hi, this is Paolo Baldesi, Senior Vice President of Fernway Group. Welcome to a new episode of the Fernway Insights podcast. Today, as we continue with the theme of Disruption 2.0, our guest is Rodrigo Liang, co-founder and CEO of Palo Alto-based artificial intelligence startup, Sambanova Systems. Last summer, the startup raised 678 million in Series D funding, bringing its total funding to more than 1 billion and raising its valuation to more than 5 billion. Founded in 2017, Sambanova came out of stealth mode just over a year ago, and it is shaking up the AI space by keeping its customers to join the AI revolution and transform their business in weeks rather than years with Dataflow as a service. Prior to co-founding Sambanova, Rodrigo was a senior vice president responsible for Spark Processor and ASIC development at Oracle. He led one of the industry's largest engineering organizations responsible for the design of state-of-the-art processors and ASICs for enterprise servers. Rodrigo has a Master of Science and Bachelor of Science degrees in Electrical Engineering from Stanford University. Rodrigo, welcome to our podcast. I'm very excited to have you here today. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm doing well. Very good. Thank you. So we'll start with a very basic question, getting your perspective on the state of the artificial intelligence. You have talked a lot about the shift from a pre-AI to post-AI world. So for the benefit of our listeners, could you describe what does this transition entail for the various industries and customers? What magnitude of changes are we talking about here? It's uh, actually here, the pre-AI to post-AI is what I was talking about last year. Over the past uh, year or so, Pre-AI to post-AI world is what I was talking about last year. What you've seen, what you've seen over the last 12 months or so is many of the largest companies have now accelerated into it. What the level of transition that this represents is mimics what we saw about 20, or 20 years ago with the internet, where initially the internet seemed like basically email, maybe a web page, right? Maybe a little bit of light browsing on commerce. Now, today is everything we do. It's at the center of everything we do. Every business, every person touches the internet every single day, right? And companies that did not embrace it at the time, 15, 20 years ago, are now facing a significant disadvantage in the market or potentially gone. So AI has this parallel today. And we've seen the capabilities that AI is able to produce for individuals, for companies, for enterprises. and it's just a matter of how quickly people adopt it. And so we are in the early, early days, but already accelerating into production AI. And I think what we, what we want to talk about here is where do people start? How do people get going? Because it will be the fundamental technology that powers the businesses, powers everything we do every single day. And you're going to see a lot of these things come in in a very rapid fashion 
transforming every every part of every company in the world. Great. I think this is a good segue to the next question. And so what are the use cases and applications that you're seeing accelerating and that will become mainstream? Yeah, I mean, it's if you talk about uh, most industries, you see people already doing robotic process automation, RPA. You know, these are things that low-level tasks that you see humans for years having to do that we have now able to put systems in, allow the machine, you know, using text recognition, voice recognition, image recognition, and be able to process them very efficiently, very effectively, probably more accurately, right? Because uh, humans sometimes were error prone uh, with those types of tasks and deliver significant cost benefits, significant uh, velocity benefit, you know, many good, good things about it. And so you see, for example, in banking financials, People are doing this everywhere with, with text extraction for a variety of tasks that the banks have to do, right? Very efficient. You think when you look at banks using it for, for compliance and look at contracts and scanning contracts, extracting data out of the contracts and inserting them into, into different places in their system so that they can make use of the information. And so lots and lots of use cases around text. Language, of course, you know, you hear about the language translation where people are using for customer service, and you know, these some some of them today are pretty amazing. You make a phone call and you're not quite sure if the other person on the other side is live or not. It's pretty amazing you know, what these uh, uh, translated and generated languages are able to do these days. And so, uh, tremendous use cases around language, tremendous use cases around image, tremendous use cases around recommendations and systems like that that we can talk about, but super exciting time for, for the world to really be embrace these types of use cases and bring, in, bring them into their businesses. Great. You mentioned the financial industries and, and probably many other industries that deal with customer for which customer service is centric. What are other industries that are actually going to be uh, among the first ones who will get mainstream with AI use cases and applications? Yeah, healthcare is going to be another one that's really exciting. Yeah, we've done some really great work with uh, the U.S. government, you know, the uh, Argonne National Labs, Lawrence Livermore National Labs. We've done some tremendous work there where, you know, these models are incredibly large and you're trying to think about imaging and detecting cancer on some medical images, right? And things like that where the image recognition has to be so sophisticated because the resolution of the image has to be very large. Yeah, yeah, very high resolution to find the very, very fine artifacts embedded in these very complex images. And so uh, being able to train images and identify whether that's classifying you know, uh, certain images uh, for, for cancer or not, or segmenting it, which is drawing boundaries around kind of where the artifact is. These are really sophisticated use cases that are very, very useful for, for radiologists and, and folks in the uh, medical imaging world to be able to be more productive and make their services more, more extensive. Certainly, we did a lot of work with, uh, with Lawrence Livermore on COVID and, and some of the work around there. You can think about microscopy and a lot of the similar challenges of training images that are very high resolution and then looking for looking for insights in, in, in those types of models, very difficult to do. And, and you're going to see people continue to use machines to accelerate that type of work, right? So drug discovery is already very pervasive. You hear that a lot. You, know, you hear about kind of doing patient data now, people combining images and text from the doctor's reports you know, and, and using that data to actually help with diagnostics, right? With preventive care, right? All, all, all of those things that you hear in the healthcare side of the world, very, very active, incredible progress 
using AI. You see it with retail. Retail is going to be another area where recommendation systems have already been in place for many, many years, but for the most part, they're you know, they're correlational, right? Meaning big data, you know, if uh, Paolo, you bought this, other people that bought that, you know, also bought this thing, right? So the, the correlation as good as, as good as it can be today is not nearly as good as if you allow the machine to you know, look at all the possible data and raise the likelihood that that recommendation is going to be pertinent to you. And so there are a number of large companies, Facebook, including other big companies that have invested a lot of energy, really trying to figure out how to advance this field. How do we bring even greater accuracy? Because it's good for the it's good for the, the vendor, but equally it's good for the customer, the consumer. None of us want to be presented stuff that doesn't apply, right? We don't want that. That's noise, right? You think about how much noise it's in our inboxes every day. You know, how much noise is on our phones every day because you know, it, it's suggesting things. And so the world wants to be more efficient, both on the seller side and the buyer side, that you want these systems to be very pertinent to what we, we care about. Right, you want that, and so there are a lot of large companies really making huge strides in it. And this is one that one that you can really see the competitive nature of this. That those who are able to actually advance this to a certain level will have an undeniable advantage over those who do not, because there are only so many dollars in the market, so many eyeballs in the market. Whoever gets to the consumers first will be the ones that have an advantage. And I think companies are going to have this race towards kind of building these systems because it's a competitive world to try to capture eyeballs, capture, you know, customers, capture dollars, right? And so retail is going to be one of those really interesting things. And I use retail as a very general, you know, general term. It could be retail, it could be advertising, it could be, you know, a, a variety of things that uh, we do today on our phone and, and media devices. Fantastic. Uh, now, talk us through the role of hardware development. What is the magnitude of change that we need to see uh, when it comes to hardware, right? What are the building blocks of making AI uh, a reality for all businesses? Yeah, so let's take a step back and think about the magnitude of why things are changing, right? And so I've been building high-performance systems for enterprise for almost 30 years, right? And we've gone from this generation where we're building these large systems, you know, almost mainframe life, but it wasn't, it was at the time kind of these large, large scale systems tailored to run software programs that were written by computer scientists. So if you think about the interaction of these systems to the, 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 the application, it was largely to a small number of computer scientists who were writing code specifically for that machine, right? Come mid to late 90s, what's happened? Suddenly, you have an entire ecosystem of hardware, computers, servers, networking, storage, all that was tuned for these handful of computer scientists and serving their needs. And yet the internet just broke it open and all 7 billion people in the world were initiating traffic and touching a server every day. Right. So if you think about okay, why was that change? Why did that change happen? People say, oh, it's because we created multi-core, because we created this type of stack, that type of software. No, no, no. What fundamentally changed there is the fact that we went from a world of small number of interactors, right, primarily computer scientists writing specific programs, to all seven billion people in the world clicking, interacting, and then initiating traffic to an infrastructure that was grossly, grossly underprovisioned for it. Right. You think about it, it's not just the computing side and all the TCP IP connections you have to finish. It's every networking, every storage, every data center, all the things that we had to 
we had to put together. And that kicked off 20 years of technology innovation, right? 20 years of new CPU design, new storage, new networking, new network processors, new, you know, all of these things, right? You, you know, all the storage systems, all the software that was uh, put on top of it, VMs and LDOMs, all of those things, data lakes, all of it got kicked off because of that changing model. And here we are again. And people say, well, what, how, why, why is this going to be so fundamental? Why do you need to change so many things? Well, here's what's going to happen. We already see it today. For the next 20 years, the main interactor with systems won't be human at all, right? It's going to be every car, every cell phone, every doorknob, every traffic light, every device that's out there is going to be smart. And every smart device is going to send something to some server that has to then respond back with some intelligence. Right? That's just how the world is. And that doesn't take a lot of us to actually imagine because you already see it today. Your phone is actually producing all sorts of new things to be calculated wherever you move. As soon as you move, it's trying to do other things, right? And so you didn't push any button, it just started, right? And so in the world of AI, what you're seeing now is that you know, the large majority of interactors will become non-human. And worse yet, each transaction, when we humans were doing things, I want to buy something. Click one button, I buy, you sell, done. In the world of AI, is a camera, a camera in a car detects something. I got to now iterate and figure out many, many times, is this a cat? Is it a dog? Is it a human, right? And the way that AI works is through a lot of different transactions, we hone in on what is that particular item that I saw, right? So now you have the multiplying effect of many, many devices. You know, it's not 7 billion people in the world interacting. It's probably 700 billion devices, right? They are talking to this, to this computing ecosystem. Each of those is no longer a singular transaction each time. Each of those is this recurring, you know, is this converging transaction that is machine learning to allow you to figure what it is. And so now you've got this future that is explosive, and the world, again, is grossly, grossly under provision to handle that. Right, so now you tell me, what do we need to do? It's gonna kick off twenty years of stuff that we gotta go through, right? That that that's so interesting, Rodrigo. Let us now shift gears, though. I would love to hear a little bit more about Sambanova, and uh, what's what really impressed me is that Sambanova really began as a research project at the Stanford University. Did you imagine that at that time, the company would become one of the most well-funded AI startups? Bring us a little bit back. To those times, what was your mindset in the lab? How was working with your co-founders? What was your vision at that time, and how it evolved? Yeah, my you know I've got two two of the most brilliant minds in the world as co-founders. You know, Kunle Olukoten has been a uh, professor of computer science and electrical engineering at Stanford for for thirty years, and and Chris Ray is just one of the most brilliant minds in, in computer science. A professor at Stanford, a genius, focus on databases, machine learning, and and you know just a brilliant mind when it comes to that type of uh, technology. And all of us, when we got together, we started thinking, well, look, you know, when you if you identify the shift that I just described. Right? There is no way you solve this problem by band-aiding old architectures forward. There's just no way to do it, right? It's such a fundamental shift in the way that the world's going to operate. Really difficult to take hardware architectures that have been around for 25, 30 years. Which think about it, like almost every single hardware architecture we're running today has been around for 25 to 30 years, right? And so really difficult to evolve that to, to, to fix such a discontinuous shift in the way the use case is going to happen, 
right? And so, so it started with the idea that says, look, we've got to get back to first principles. We've got to get back to what are we trying to do? And what's different between 25 years ago and now is that 25 years ago, now I was building processors at HP and, and, and at, at Sun, we focused mostly on the way that instructions had to operate. You know, you send me a computer scientist wants to do an ad, one plus one, we focus on the, on, on the addition, right? In the world that we have today, data is king. The operations are king, data is king, right? And so what you have to do is you kind of put the whole thing on its head and say, no, now instead of actually moving data around and copying everywhere to optimize for where the best operator is, what you really need to do is actually focus on the data. Where is the data and flow the data to where they're, you know, flow the data and let the operation wrap itself around it. And that's what we did at Summit, right? We focused, you know, based on the research that Stanford did and said, look, if we create a data flow machine, optimize for data efficiency, optimize for the least amount of data movement, making sure the data shows up when and where it needs to be, no more, no less, you're going to get significant performance advantage, significant efficiency advantage, significant flexibility advantage, which you cannot do today because the legacy architectures force you to chop up the jobs exactly the way that the architecture requires you, copy the data in all the different places that you need it, then you've got to reassemble and do all the things that you have to do today. And we've accepted as a as a community that, hey, that's just how it is. The data center's got to explode and got to buy more storage and got to buy more memory. I just got to buy all this stuff. And then, you know, they've got global warming because data centers, you know, all the things that we've got, you know, out there does not have to be. It does not have to be, right? And so that's kind of where we started, you know, really since some amazing research and work that was done by Chris uh, Ray and Kunle Olukotun. And then, and bringing then a team that have been doing a lot of this work together for enterprise, for cloud environments, for production environment, in order to commercialize this, that that really was was the marriage that allowed us to actually make this much progress this quickly, and then tackle such a big problem, which otherwise you can't really nibble at, right? You can't come and just take a small piece. You got to come and look at the whole thing and say, we've got to revamp this whole thing. Otherwise, the entire infrastructure is going to get crushed under the weight of seven hundred billion or whatever the number of devices want to talk to. You decided to take a software-first approach, Sambanova, initially designing a system optimized for managing data and then creating the hardware needed to optimally run that application. Were there any opponents of that approach when you started with it? How much of Sambanova's success to date would you attribute to that approach? You know, it's coming from somebody that studied hardware design at Stanford build chips from you know the beginning that's kind of what we did in the 90s we built the chips and software would then come and write on top of it it's 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 a way that a lot of hardware folks in industry sometimes think i'll just build a chip and they will come right <laughs> you build it yes. they will come. <laughs> here's the problem and this is something that was very visible to me when when i was part of sun and oracle acquired some one of the most amazing things that came out of that that transition where all the folks that were building these very complex systems inside sun and then you as you recall sun in the internet area was the dot and dot com right yeah <laughs> that was what everybody wanted right when you actually build a website what you wanted was a sun server that's what you wanted, right in the, in the 90s and you're coming from a world that was so hardware-centric, people would just build the hardware, build the chip, and then we'll figure out what to do with it, right? There's still a culture in the world where people just build hardware and then we'll figure out what to do with it. Well, that's not okay anymore. Here's why. Because unless you understand what the software is trying to do, right? 
the ecosystem of software is already getting predefined, right? The ecosystem of software has has requirements because you have data lakes, you have you know you have the ways that the uh, APIs that talk to certain systems, and you're not going to change every application that's out there. And so what you need to do is actually think about kind of what are the workflows that exist? Where do you fit into that workflow? What are the APIs that you have to adhere to because you're not going to change the world? And then come in and build a system that allows the customers to quickly take advantage of technology. So it's a different way of thinking about it, right? But if you take that approach and say, hey, I'm not only going to address uh, somebody that's willing to throw all their old things away and start from new, and rather come in and say, people have workflows that exist, people have business they're running, we're going to come in and we're just going to take a chunk of it, revamp that piece and give them these AI capabilities that they never could imagine before, but do it in a seamless way. Right? If you start with that, the answer you come up with is a very different answer. I assure you that that's true. It's a very different answer. And so we started from an idea, okay, this must be, the data has to flow this way. This is how it's structured. It has to be open source interfaces like PyTorch and TensorFlow. We're not going to go and do our own custom whatever, right? Many, many companies go and have to force people to learn a new language. No, none of that. Use open standards. It already exists. The world has normalized around that. Leaning to the ecosystem. Now, from that, draw down kind of what has to be, right? What has to be. And if you go and look at the data, look at the application, what they want, eventually arrive at a conclusion of what's ultimately going to make a difference, right? And that's ultimately what, you know, what, what the difference is. And there's no doubt about it. Most people say, hey, we have software, we're software first. No, really be honest about it. What was the first thing that that, you know, that, that, that company did? Did you put a chip down first or did you put a software down first, right? <laughs> Most companies will say, oh, yeah, I'm a software first, whatever. Okay, no, really, look at, back at it. Did you take out the chip first, or did you actually write the, write the software stack? <laughs> you can't change history, right? You can't change history. History is history, right? And so, so that's kind of what we, what we did at Summon We really started with the software first. Everything was actually modeled on, the software stack was modeled first on a substrate that was not the chip, and eventually it became clear. This is what software is trying to do. This is what machine learning really wants. We, this is what these types of kernels are trying to do. Now let's create a platform from grounds up, right? Not anchored by legacy cores and legacy ISAs and legacy you know, routines that you have to do. We're not anchored by any of those. Let's do what the software wants. And out comes what we call a reconfigurable data flow unit. Something that adjusts itself to the software stack to the application exactly the way they want it, when they want it. And what you see with the customers, and we have the US government who's standing up and say, look, here are two things that are really important. They bought it, installed it within 45 minutes. They were training models from you know, 45 minutes of plugging power and plugging the, 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 the ethernet in, they were training models. So that's the first thesis we had is use the existing workflow they have. Do not force a customer to throw everything away and start over, right? Use the workflow we have, but then within that, Give them a significant advantage, and, and and what they're you know from day one they start saying these applications that they were training running 10x faster, 10x faster, right? And so so you not only do you get significant advantage in performance, you get significant advantage in in use case. It also gives you the ability to actually take that and then do new things. We can talk about as we get into the data flow as a service and why we ended up talk, uh, why we ended up doing that. That's great. I think this is a great segue to business model, right? Let's talk a little bit about that. Apparently, we continue to see that as a service, business models are becoming increasingly popular in the, in the technology world. 
especially in software. At Sambanova 2, you offer data flow as a service, which is a subscription model where customers get a complete AI solution, including next generation hardware, software, and pre-trained models. How important do you think is this type of business model to drive adoption at scale? Yeah. So this is a new paradigm that exists only in the world of AI that we didn't have before. Now think about what you used to have, right? You used to have hardware, right? Hardware with the operators, one plus one always equals two. Okay, so you have you buy the hardware. Then you have the application. Here's my you know, CRM, right? Here's my customer relationship management software. Here's my you know, supply chain management software. Whatever the application is that I want to use, I want to actually interface with the hardware. Well, my data flows to the software application, runs on the hardware, one plus one equals two, and you get the same result. Now it's just a matter of who runs faster. Okay. In the world of AI, unfortunately, there's a new layer called models, right? Models, which is, which is now why we ended up thinking about this differently from everybody else, where there's a hardware, you need that. There's no doubt about it, right? There's applications, you know, I'm doing supply chain management. I want to predict yields. I'm doing a customer relationship. I want to predict, you know, kind of what the customer might want next. I want to recommend the right set of things. All of those things get baked into the application. But what's the problem here today? is there's a layer called models. And depending on the quality of your model and how well you train it, one plus one doesn't always equal two, right? A good model might be 1.99, a bad model could be 1.4, right? And so here's the problem now that some of the largest companies have invested hundreds and hundreds of data scientists to get good at models. GPT this, GPT, right? You, you look at these models and the accuracy have made tremendous leaps and bounds. And if you're a large company that can afford five, six, hundred, maybe thousands of data scientists and thousands of machine learning experts, you can do it yourself. But think of the thousands of enterprises today where they're trying to hire data scientists and one, it's hard to find, two, they're really expensive, and three, they can't keep them, right? And so the challenge with now, you, you're a company, you're, you're a Fortune you know, 1000 company, you've got a lot of resources, you need to actually transition to a post-AI world, I can't find the data scientists, right? And so what Sambanova comes in for is, let us do it for you. Let us cover that gap, which is the model and training it to a certain level of result, right? Because without it, you can't actually operate AI. And so what, what we're trying to do here is for all these companies that do not have the expertise, and frankly, they don't want, I mean, their business is something else. They're a bank, they're a retailer, they're whatever. They're, their business is not, AI, right? Why invest so much energy in trying to keep track of? Is it ResNet? Is it ReScaleNet? Is it UNet? Is it you know GPT, GPT three? Like it's really hard for these businesses to keep keep track with all the changes that are happening. And it happens to be something that Samanova we do every single day, right? We do every day, all the time for all of our customers. And so I think so with Dataflow as a service, what it is is for enterprises to have a choice. You want to do it yourself. Or do you want to you know, get someone over and bring the expertise into a subscription? So that, those are the choices, right? And some people have their own models. They need that. Mm -hmm. You can do it yourself. You know, we have an offering for that called Data Scale. But many people are now coming in and like, you know what? You're right. What I need is a prediction. I don't need to understand GPT-3 or GPT-2. I don't need to, right? I need a prediction. I need that service. I need that workflow. And for that, data flow is a service is perfect. It's a brilliant solution indeed. AI is, is accelerating, and this is definitely a disruptive technology that is being a real threat to incumbent. 
So if, as you think about the you know incumbent technologies, what those players, those incumbent players need to do to adapt to avoid the risk of being the next Kodaks, Blackberries, Nokias, whoever and whatever, right? What what do they need to do? Well, I think you have to start by figuring out where it's going to come in. You know, this is the just like the internet, it started with web pages or maybe even email. I don't know. You know, you, you know, maybe like email, you know, but then like it started with web pages. When, when the internet came in, everybody started putting up web pages. Here's my whatever.com, right? You got to go buy your.com, right? You got to do that. And so people start with web pages. That's kind of, and some people, that was the end of it, right? That's the end of it. And you think of the sophistication today of what you know, what you can do with services like DoorDash and Uber, or what you think of like you know what all the services that get streamed through uh, YouTube and Netflix and all the different things that we're able to do today, well beyond, well, well beyond just putting some advertising on a front page. You know what I mean? Like well beyond, right? You know, and so. So this is kind of the transition that companies have to have. You know, AI, oh, is it for me to just uh, recognize some photos, right? You know, you can say, hey, you know, let me log into my phone. I can recognize the face as a security thing. Great, right? Well, that's kind of level one, right? Level one out of maybe the possibility of doing hundreds of, of, of different things that with, with, with AI. And so for a lot of the businesses, really what you have to do is come in and you've got to understand what is my strategy? Where do I start? How do I progress crisply, right? Because here's the other thing, the web page, when, when the internet started, was easy because you could say, oh, hey, here's this company that, this is the store I used to go to. They have a web page now. It's, it was visible, right? With AI, what's happening is most of the improvement, most of the investment, most of the advancement, which would be competitive advantage, is happening behind the scenes, right? You and I see it, right? You see our home advisor, you know, the, the home the, the Alexas of the world, they, they're getting smarter every day. Right, they're getting smart every day. They say a little something that's kind of oh, it's getting hard. My car, your Teslas, right? Your car, your smart car. They're getting smarter every day. They recognize them, you know. So all of these services and tools that are available behind the scenes, they're getting better. And so it's not as visible to the average company to realize how much progress, how much investment, and how far ahead is my competition getting because you don't get to see it. It's not as visible as what it used to be. It's like oh, here's the web page. I can buy online now. I can click online. I can buy it. I can do these things online now. That used to be very visible and companies could see what each other were doing, right? With AI, it's not. It's silent, right? It's silent. And, you know, if I'm way ahead, why would I, why would I tell you what I'm doing? I mean, a lot of these businesses are a very competitive environment. You're, you're, you're all trying to find an advantage. And so if you have something good and some way to get, you know, capture those eyeballs, capture those dollars, capture those those are the, the attention, why would you tell anybody else, right? And so that's what's happening right now in the AI world. Why, why are people investing so much in AI? It's because of that, right? Because they see a win, they see an advantage, and they're actually deploying it very aggressively. And so for the folks who haven't done that, and they think they're in early stages, well, that was last year and the year before, right? Because last year, the, we're actually now in full production on, on a lot of these different things with, with customers and so people need to pay attention figure out well, what is your strategy what do you where do you start and if you don't know we'll help you we'll help you figure out where to start right and get you on a plan so that every single quarter you're making improvements on ai and you're transitioning your business because it's going to take you some amount of time and it's not going to happen overnight right and you you need to start fantastic in closing rodrigo the ai market 
is expected to be huge. As you said, it's going to take every piece of industrial landscape, non-industrial landscape. In, in this big market, what are your aspirations for Sambanova? Well, I mean, we're, we're here, again, to be a, a, a player in helping companies transform their businesses. That's really, you know, very clear. Our, our lane really is around enterprise. You know, we focus on the global 2000, this, you know, the, the large uh, companies, I, I, the, the, the AI market will, will segment just like internet did, right? <laughs> there will be kind of folks that focus on your cell phone devices. There'll be, you know, focus, you know people who will, will focus on, you know, IoT and there'll be people. We are very much in the cloud, you know, in the cloud and the enterprise environment. What we're focusing on are business solutions for large businesses in production. That's what we think about, right? And so you think about your mission critical workflows that require security, require high availability, require all these services that allow businesses, businesses at scale to run. That's what we focus on. And that's where our expertise has been for the last 20 years, as well as what Samanova itself is able to do, you know, as far as the products that we're building, focused towards this segment. And so, so for us, it's really about, you know, helping enterprises transition, how, helping companies figure out how to go from pre-AI to post-AI and accelerating into it and building services that give you the advantages and benefits of AI. And so we, we do think that, you know, you know, most companies will need expert, expert partners to do this. Is not easy, right? You look at a model with GPT and you got to aggregate thousands of GPUs and hire hundreds of data scientists. Then after you do all that, you got to spend years building up the expertise to train these things correctly. And then by the time you do it, the next model came in. Now you got to go and learn that model, right? Models are changing every month, every quarter, right? And so you, you just to keep up with all of that, you know, why, why do it yourself? when the experts can come in and help you. And then you can shift your attention to what most people are talking about, which is data-centric AI, right? And my secret sauce, my information is on the data. Let me cultivate, let me curate my data because I know my customers. I know my services better than anybody else. Let's do that. And then let me partner with somebody else to, to, to help with the model and compute side. And that's really what Samanova aspires to be, you know, that trusted advisor to help companies be able to transform their businesses from pre-AI to post-AI and really use their data as a secret sauce for, for those companies to have a, a, a competitive advantage in the market. That's fantastic, Rodrigo. And I think that was a great way to conclude our podcast. Sounds like you have been up to a fantastic journey and you and Sambanova, but the next chapter uh, sounds even more exciting. So best of luck to you and Sambanova. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks for having us. Thanks to you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Fernway Insights. Please visit Fernway.com for more podcasts, publications, and events on developments shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector.